Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Over the next few weeks on Beat Podcast, we're going to introduce the life of Augustine, the great theologian and philosopher of Hippo Regius, the North African thinker who has radically shaped and fundamentally shaped Western culture. Four years before he died in 430, Augustine handed over the administrative duties of the church that he pastored in, in Hippo Regius, to an associate by the name of Araclius. On the occasion of Araclius's formal induction as the pastor of the church, he stood up to preach while Augustine sat behind him. Quite understandably, Araclius was overwhelmed by a sense of total inadequacy in the presence of Augustine, and he made this comment, The cricket chirps, the swan is silent. But as John Piper pointed out a number of years ago that he gave on Augustine, if only Araclius could have looked down over 16 centuries at the enormous influence of Augustine, he would have realized that the swan is not silent. For through his over 120 books, Augustine has been speaking to the church and the Western world for close to 1,600 years. Augustine is a seminal thinker in the history of both Western civilization and the Christian church. It can be said of him with regard to the realm of theology, what Cassius says of Julius Caesar in William Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, he doth bestride the narrow world like a colossus, and we petty men walk under his huge legs. Apart from the scriptural authors, no other figure had a greater impact on Christian thought down to the time of the Reformation than Augustine. For instance, Roman Catholic views on contraception and suicide and infant baptism are basically the views of Augustine. For those of us who delight in Reformed and Evangelical theology, Benjamin Warfield's comments are especially apropos here. The most significant fact about Augustine is that he gave adequate expression to that type of Christianity which has since attached to itself the name of evangelical. Again, Warfield could say, the great contribution which Augustine has made to Christian doctrine is embodied in the theology of grace. And yet again, when the great revival that we call the Reformation took place, it was on its theological side a revival of Augustinianism. The facts of Augustine's early life are well known because he wrote them down in his Confessions, one of the most famous of his books. Augustine was born on November the 13th, 354. The son, perhaps the eldest, we know of a brother, Navigius, and a sister, but we don't know the birth order of the three. The son of a pagan father, Patricius, and a Christian mother, Monica. The 4th century was an age of mixed marriages at this level of society, in which devout Christian women like Monica were often found to be praying for the conversion of their irreligious husbands. Her prayers were not unavailing. According to Augustine, Patricius accepted baptism on his deathbed. Patricius was a municipal official and a minor property holder at Tagast in Numidia, 
now the Algerian town of Souk Arras. Aspiring to better his lower middle-class family, Patricius sacrificed in order to give his son, Augustine, the sort of liberal education that would lead him into an honored position in Roman culture. Important to note that during his childhood studies, Augustine studied Latin with great enthusiasm, but he never loved Greek. And this would dog him later in life, and he would regret not having paid attention to the study of Homer and learning Greek. Um, he would eventually be able to read Greek with the aid of a lexicon, but it was never as natural to him as his mother tongue of Latin. Augustine studied first at Tagaste and afterwards at Carthage, where he went up to university in 371 at the age of 17. He remained there until 383. His father, who, as I said, uh, became a believer on his deathbed, seems to have a little influence on his son in many ways. On the other hand, his mother Monica was a devout Christian, one whose prayers were used of God to bring her son to Christ, something that Augustine uh, mentions in a very, very early book called The Happy Life. Before he left for Carthage, Monica warned him earnestly not to engage in the sins of fornication and the sin of adultery. But Augustine said, I went to Carthage, where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust, my real need was for you, my God, who are the food of the soul, but I was not aware of this hunger. In his first year at Carthage, Augustine led what many might regard as a typical life of a student, enjoying the body theatre of the day, using sex in search of love, consorting with a group called the Evasores. It sounds like some intellectual think tank until you translate it into English, the Smashers, which is probably better assigned in the contemporary English world to a punk rock group. Um, they used to invade classrooms and cause turmoil, uh, running in, running out, uh, and causing turmoil for lecturers and teachers. Within two years, though, all of this had changed. Augustine had taken a concubine to live with. This arrangement was not regarded as scandalous by pagan Roman society, since many pagans of the upper, middle, and, upper, upper and middle classes would have such an arrangement with a social inferior, until the complicated arrangements for a financially advantageous match with some girl of their own class could be made. In other words, they used these women for sex. Augustine had a son by her, Adiodatus, which literally means gift from God. And he had also been smitten by a desire to find the truth. He had read a dialogue called The Hortentius by Cicero, uh, the book is now lost and known only from fragments quoted by Augustine and other ancient writers. But it was what we call a protreptic, that is a treatise designed to inspire in the reader an enthusiasm for the discipline of philosophy. Through all his other vagaries of interest and allegiance until the time of Augustine's conversion to Christianity, Cicero would remain the one master from whom the young African learned the most in terms of literary style. Here are Augustine's own words. Reading this book altered my outlook on life. It changed my prayers to you, O Lord, and provided me with new hopes and aspirations. All my empty dreams suddenly lost their charm, and my heart began to throb with a bewildering passion for the wisdom of eternal truth. I began to climb out of the depths to which I had sunk in order to return to you. My God, how I burned with longing to have wings to carry me back to you, away from all earthly things, although I had no idea what you would do with me. For yours is the wisdom, 
In Greek, the word philosophy means love of wisdom, and it was with this love that the Hortentius inflamed me. Seeking truth, Augustine fell prey to a cult called Manichaeanism, founded by a Persian named Mani, who had been crucified in Persia in the 270s, about a hundred or so years before the time period we're looking at. Mani claimed that the Holy Spirit had come upon him in such a way as to reveal hidden mysteries to him, with the result that Mani was wholly united with the Spirit. He was, in fact, the promised paraclete of John 14 to 16 which obviously was um, uh, a falsehood. The views promoted by Mani and the Manichaeans that Augustine were familiar with were very similar to early Gnosticism from the second century. It combined a radical cosmological dualism with ascetic practices. They believed that little fragments of God had been scattered throughout the universe in both animals and plants, a result of the war between good and evil. Melons and cucumbers were considered to contain a particularly large amount of divinity and were therefore prominent in the Manichaean diet. Mani, moreover, regarded the lower half of the body as the disgusting work of the devil and thus viewed sexuality as the devil's invention. Celibacy was thus encouraged and having children frowned upon. The world the Manichees thus imagined was torn between two contrary powers, the perfectly good creator and the perfectly evil destroyer. The world seen by human eyes was a battleground for their cosmic conflict. The Manichees and their followers were the few who were on the side of the good spirit and who would be rewarded for their allegiance with eternal bliss. In the meantime, all sorts of misfortune might befall the individual, but none of the wicked things he found himself doing were his fault. If the devil does compel sin, then guilt should not ensue. A few Manichees, the inner circle, were said to live perfect lives already, but the claim was hard to verify since the many disciples were kept busy waiting on the perfect few, hand and foot, to keep the few from being corrupted by contact with the evil world of matter. Augustine was a member of this cult for roughly nine years, from 372 to 383. But Augustine was too brilliant to settle for the vague and uh, weird theology of this group for long. His most poignant moment of disillusion is re recounted in the Confessions when he finally met one of the great Manichae sages, a man, a supposedly great Manichae sage, a man named Faustus. Um, he had been Augustine had been told that this man would be able to answer all of the questions that troubled Augustine. And when the man turn, finally turned up, he proved to be half-educated and incapable of more than, rec more than reciting a, uh, a, a, a less complex set of slogans than his lo local disciples had known. In other words, Augustine realized he had been had. In 383, at the age of 28, Augustine moved to Rome to reach the apex of his career ambitions. Rome of the 4th century was no longer a city with political or military significance for the Roman Empire, but nobody at the time dared say such a thing. By common consent, the pretense was maintained that this was the center of civilization, and so the pretense became self-fulfilling prophecy. Academic prestige was given here, and uh, Augustine, Augustine was now longing for such prestige. And Rome had a reputation for... Uh, academic glory stretching back for centuries. Other reasons why Augustine left North Africa for 
for Rome included his desire for a better class of pupils and more recognition as a teacher of rhetoric. His mother, hoping to dissuade him because she felt he, she needed to be near him if he was ever going to be converted, was given the slip at the quayside of Carthage, and Augustine sailed to Rome. But in Rome, everything went wrong. His health began to suffer. The students wouldn't pay their fees, and he soon became quite discouraged. Finally, hearing of a professorship in Milan, he moved to northern Italy in 384 and rented a house belonging to a man named Vercundus. Eventually, that was where Monica joined him. Already living with him was his common-law wife, whom Augustine never names, Adiodatus, his brother Navigius, and two lifelong African friends, Alypius and Avodius. And at the same time, he started to go back to church. The pastor of the congregation in Milan with whom he came to worship was a man named Ambrose, the bishop of Milan and a very famous preacher. Um, in Ambrose, Augustine found a man whose piety was fused with an intellect matching his own. And here Christianity began now to appear to him in a new and a more intellectually respectable light. As before, his most pressing personal problem was his sense of evil and his responsibility for the wickedness of his life. And Augustine had long objected to Christianity because he felt that they, the, uh, the scriptures did not explain the origin of evil. He also felt he couldn't love the scriptures because their style, in his, to his mind, a master of Latin uh, rhetoric, uh, the style of the scriptures was inelegant and almost barbaric. And here again, uh, Ambrose, elegant as a speaker and far from barbaric, showed Augustine how Christian teaching and exegesis could give life and meaning to the sacred texts. Also, uh, Ambrose showed him kindness. In fact, Augustine says that uh, before he ever listened really to what Ambrose was saying, he was drawn to Ambrose by the kindness he showed him. And slowly God began to bring conviction regarding Augustine's sinful ways into Augustine's heart. Describing Ambrose's preaching, Augustine says this, I was all ears to seize upon his eloquence. I began to sense the truth of what he said, though only gradually. I thrilled with dread and love alike. And I realized that I was far from you, that is God. And far off, I heard your voice saying, I am the God who is. Well, we'll stop at this point, and we'll see in our next episode how God would draw Augustine to himself, and he would be converted in a garden in Milan, and then subsequently baptized, and then subsequently go back to North Africa, and eventually end up at Hippo Regius, a small town on the Mediterranean coast, where he would exercise his remarkable ministry of writing and preaching. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.